Welcome to How Did I Get Here? I am your host, Joseph Anthony Batesel. This podcast focuses on interviews from people who come from all walks of life, ages, and professions that share their stories on how they got from point A to Z as they chase their dreams, successes, and failures and answer the elusive question in life that so many of us ask ourselves, how did I get here? Welcome to How Did I Get Here with my guest, B.J. Harrison. Let me tell you about B.J. B.J. has produced and narrated over 620 audiobooks. He has done characters from witches to young ingenues to gangsters to Shakespearean characters. He also has his own podcast called Classic Tales, and he has produced and narrated 700 episodes. He's a member of the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. He has produced and narrated for well-known publishers such as Simon & Schuster, Tantor, HarperCollins, Penguin, and Audible, just to name a few. He was the finalist in the Independent Audiobook Awards, which we'll talk about, and also a nominee for the Voice Arts Award. He has an array of character voices dialects, and accents at his fingertips. And let me just tell you this from a personal approach. If you go on Audible and you just type in the name B.J. Harrison and listen to his samples, you'll become a fan. Let me read a testimonial from one of his fans. Quote, in the world of audiobooks, the reader is essential for a good listening experience. And B.J. Harrison is one of the best, if not the best. I am a fan of his and have spent many hours listening to and enjoying his work, unquote. That comes from the Academy Award film composer, Joe Renzetti. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest, B.J. Harrison. B.J., how are you, man? I'm 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 flushed. I'm embarrassed. My gosh, I had that. What what an intro. I always like to start off by telling people how we met. And if I remember correctly, we met first at just a small luncheon. We have we have a group called Utah Audiobook Narrators. We're both from Utah. And we just met at a luncheon and spoke briefly. But then later on, we became reacquainted at a big conference for the League of Utah Writers here in the state of Utah when we had kind of an exhibit set up for audiobook narration. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that was great. You were an amazing person. I had no idea when I met you all of the things that you accomplished in your life. I was just overwhelmed after I started to getting to know you and they say in some of your testimonies, you're such a nice guy. And they are right. <laughs> you are such a nice guy going along with your unbelievable talent. So let's talk about BJ as a as a child. First of all, is BJ your birth name and stands for something? Uh, it it's, uh, it stands for Brent, Brent J. Harrison. And I've always hated it. Them's, uh, if I was a fighter, they would be fighting words, but I'm not a fighter, so... But we found, but but since I was a child, like a child, child, I think they were on birth announcements. They called me BJ, announcing that I was here. So I've never liked it or used it. But that's right. 
Right. So even as a child, you were you were called BJ then, mm-hmm. by your friends and everything. Friends, and everything. Yes. Awesome. Now let's talk about this. You told me in your bio that you were eight years old when you started doing Muppet impressions. <laughs> now you know that I'm going to ask you to do one of the Muppets, right? Gosh, are we? Is this an audition? An audition. Oh man, no. I can't. I haven't done Muppet impressions for years. Which characters did you do in this talent show? Oh gosh, I, 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 I probably did Swedish Chef, you know. But I, I remember when I did Animal. I just when I did Animal, I just got really close to the mic and went Animal, and it just rattled the. Sh- and then I acted like I was all nervous and shaking, about to fall down. And I was eight, you know. And they just—it was so unexpected to have a kid that into. What he was doing, they killed. They loved it. So let's go on just a little bit. So what what happens after eight? How you you mentioned to me privately that you struggled in reading just a little bit. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, quite a bit. I um, yeah, I had a hard time reading. I was not a really smart. Well, I'm still, you know. Anyway, I wasn't really sharp or brilliant or talented or anything. I was just a kid, you know, growing up just a kid going to school and I struggled with reading. I just had a hard time reading. I was, I kind of, pla- I mean, I could read, but I kind of plateaued around, you know, Encyclopedia Brown and choose your own adventure books. You know, it's like, that's anything more advanced than that. I didn't, I, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I remember my mom, when I was in eighth grade, she got me the wind and the willows and I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't do it. And so so that I, but but the thing is, I wanted to so bad. I wanted to find out all of these amazing characters, the Three Musketeers, and the Count of Monte Cristo, and Treasure Island, and because I love those adventure stories, and I wanted to really get them. But that whole world was kind of closed off for me. I, I I wanted to so badly, but I couldn't do it. So the way that I got into audiobooks, I found a, a recording of Basil Rathbone recording the telltale or no it was um the cask of amontillado by edgar Allan poe and he did a couple other ones and that recording changed my life because i got it all of the light bulbs i ever had been keeping went off at the same time because he would there was acting and there was this amazing language that i could understand and i could having an actor interpret it for me made it like well this is this is doable now and so I went crazy discovering audiobooks. And this was when I was in my early 20s. So we're kind of jumping ahead here. But anyway, that recording, it it changed my life. And I named my son after Basil Rathbone. Really? Wow. That's amazing. Mine was James Dale. Oh, yeah. Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. I just got so excited. I thought, I think I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Kind of jump just a little bit. Yep, sorry. You, that. No, that's good. <laughs> but you mentioned the fact of you became a scenic artist. Was this after you graduated from high school and then went to college? Is that right? You went to college? I didn't go to much college. I struggled and then stopped. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't. I'm not a college graduate. I'll just put that out there. I got married very, very young and kind of immediately had to start taking care of a family. And I didn't really 
I tried going to school and doing all of that, but I was just lucky enough. My father-in-law got me into doing scenery because I, I was in art a little bit. So my father-in-law got me into doing uh, working for movies and that just kind of took off. And I was able to do that for, for 20 years and kind of rise up. And, and that's how I took care of my family for 20 years wow. was being an artist in the, in film and television and trade shows and whatever work I could hustle, you know? Right. So I just kind of had to teach myself whatever I could find I uh, and, and get whatever training on the job that I that I could to kind of survive as a creative artist type person who's not that great. You know, you say I'm an artist. It's like I know how to paint things so that they crackle and stuff like that. Not real art. But <laughs> so you didn't take any official acting classes at all? No. Wow. No, sorry. No, that's a, I'm an I'm an autodidact. I've looked it up. It was in a book I did last week. It's a self-taught person. So I've just had to kind of scrap and pick up whatever I could. So yeah, I'm not You are an amazing actor. <laughs> well, I think I think you were just kind of born with that talent. Some people are. I've worked with some actors that I've taught. They were just born with that talent. Mm -hmm. And I think you have that talent. So you said that for 20 years, you listen to audiobooks every day. Mm -hmm. If you had to pick out your favorite beside the Basil Rathbone thing, <laughs> of all the ones you listened to, what was another one that really caught your attention? You thought, wow, I want to do that. Uh, David, the, the recording that Patrick Tull did of David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. That was another one because the book is so thick. It's so big. And I wanted to learn. I wanted to read Charles Dickens because I loved Christmas Carol adaptations that I'd seen, you know. But when I was able to listen to that and have all of those amazing characters, he does such a great job with all of that. That also just made me go, oh, wow, this is incredible. Absolutely incredible. That that narrator also did a bunch of the um, Aubrey Maturin Patrick O'Brien books, which are, you know, the big ships with sails, <laughs> the Napoleonic Wars kind of stuff. And I, I loved all of that. And I thought, gosh, this guy got into like this series and he has all of this work now. There's like 20 books in this series. What a, this is a good idea. How cool would it be to do that? Have you captured any of those styles of any of those audio books that you listen to of any of those narrators? Have you, did you capture any of those styles? Do you think as you developed and morphed into this audiobook narrator? Well, for years I tried to, for, I was, because I didn't have a background in acting, I was embarrassed. I didn't want people to know I was from Utah or like from wherever, you know, I wanted to hide who I really was. And so I did it wrong for a long time. Because I tried to sound like Basil Rathbone and tried to, you know, and I tried to sound like James Mason and stuff like, you know, whatever, you know. So it took me a long time to get over that and really develop my own true, honest and, you know, vulnerable de delivery that I hopefully am. I'm, I'm always trying to make sure that I keep that fresh. But if, if you're asking if I've copied people, I've copied everybody I possibly could <laughs> to try to. You just borrow from you know it's you borrow from everywhere to, that's a good character voice hey i can do that one i can do you know that so so yeah i've just kind of gathered what i could and taught myself <laughs> so talk about some of the steps that you had to achieve to become 
so proficient at audiobook narration where you've done 600 over 620 audiobooks what were some of the steps to get to that point well it started when i did my podcast and started my podcast started in 2007 so there were only like three podcasts out there there weren't very many this is before iPhones uh old click wheel iPods and stuff like that so there weren't very many there so I, I I did a podcast. I did three episodes, and I released it to Apple, and they actually featured me on their new and notable main page on the their on the, the iTunes Music Store, which is what it was back then. And that got a that it just kind of took a life of its own, and that got really really popular. And because nobody else was doing what I, that at the time, there weren't a lot of high quality, well produced. Uh, fiction podcasts at the time. And so I, my friend of mine told me how to do it. He told me about podcasting. I didn't have a computer at the time. So I borrowed one from my stepbrother and I uh, didn't have internet at my home. So I used it at the shop that I was working to upload my podcasts. And then I uh, just put them up there and looked at my numbers. And one day I came in, I mean, it started, you know, and you think, Oh, it's going to be huge. And there's like, you know, my mom's listened to it or whatever. You got one, uh, and then, and then it just took off and it was, it was, it was crazy. So after that happened, I peaked at like the number three audiobook spot in iTunes uh, when I did the Pit in the Pendulum. And after that, Audible or uh, iTunes, the Apple, exec, an Apple executive actually reached out to me and so did Audible saying, Hey, we're starting a new program where we reach, we're reaching out to people who have home studios and we might want to we want to include you in that and see if you we can see if you, how it works having a home produced audiobook not in our, one of our studios but you you do it at home and see how that works so i'm like okay so they gave me a couple audiobooks through audible you know i did okay i struggled through and did the best i could and then after that they started up the acx program and and then uh, i got most of my work through them I did a lot of independent work through them and I'm actually still transitioning to do work through more and more publishers. Now I'm kind of the guy who's done 600 books that nobody's ever heard of. Do my own, do my own thing, make my own way. So that's kind of how I, how it happened. Right. So as far as your training is concerned, then you've never had an agent and have done actual narration for voiceover or anything until you got into audiobook narration. Is that correct? That's correct. It was through, it was because I was able to go look at the books that I've done. Then I was able to get an agent and get, get their interest. That's a remarkable story. And I think it goes along with my whole premise of, of my show is that just an ordinary guy, oh, yeah. ordinary girl that I interview and they do extraordinary things in their life. What, what do you say to people, BJ, when people say, well, you're not trained, and how did you accomplish all this? How do you, how do you respond to people when they ask you those kind of questions? Yeah, I'm always trying to level up and get better. It it kind of bakes in this kind of feeling of oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to <laughs> you know the volume of work that I've done is does not mean that I'm super you know super competent at every aspect of this industry by any means. I learned by doing. That's how I figured it out. So some are better than others, but on, on all of them, I've just kind of developed the skill to do my best and do the best that I can. And I'm lucky enough that people are like, okay, that's pretty good. 
written however many books I've done. There's always room to improve. That's the craft. Do you you tell, we might have a lot of young listeners, I know that, that are potential audiobook narrators and voiceover people. Do you tell them, though, that it's pretty much a given now that they should try to get as much training as they can instead of just getting up in front of a microphone and experimenting? What would you say? Oh, heck yes. Absolutely. I mean, the more training you can possibly get, the better. I mean, that's a shortcut. I had to learn so many things the hard way. This is learning the hard way. But my word, if you can get with a good trainer, a good, because I've been able to just jump. I feel like I've been able to jump by leaps and bounds once I started getting training. Even after I'd done 500 books, then I started the training that other people had been doing. And then it was, so many things just clicked into place. Oh, that, so many things I've been fighting over the years. So by all means, get training, go, go to university, get all of the training you can, because why not benefit from people who've done it before and can teach you the way? You, you mentioned ACX, and you mentioned that was a stepping stone into getting probably involved with your publishers, correct? So that's how you yeah. start. Yeah, right. that's really, that's when, because I didn't know where to find audiobook work. I didn't. Right. So I had one publisher, Audible, that reached out to me, end of list. And so then I, I started auditioning. I was, in, I was in the pilot program. So I was in the call when they said what it was and everything. And I was started to help them start it up and everything. And so that was the only place I knew how to get audiobook work. So that's, that's what I did for a while. So, yeah. How, how popular is audiobook narration right now as far as people listening to audiobooks? Every year, Audible comes out and says we're they're they're growing by leaps and bounds by every like you know outrageous numbers because the technology is actually it just makes it more and more and more accessible. The easier it is to to digest this this media and everything, it's just it's just getting more and more and more. But the thing that I wanted to ask was also the fact of why do you think people now, especially we're not talking about COVID only. But now it seems like even more young people are not reading books, but they're listening to books. Why do you think there's this overwhelming attraction to audiobooks, and it's just grown so much? What What do you think has 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 uh, attributed to that? Well, the accessibility. But I mean, I for me at least, I mean, I loved. I the reason I'm if I am a well-read person, which I wouldn't say. The reason I know and I'm familiar with the classics is because I was able to listen to them on the job and listen to them for 20 years while I was working. Because you can listen to audiobooks when you're doing all sorts of things and learn new things. I mean, the nonfiction books that are out there are amazing. And it's incredible to be able to do whatever you want, housework, whatever it is, or even some vac- vocations, and be learning and and listening and being entertained and becoming a more well-read person or whatever you want to do. It's, I just think it's wonderful. I'm thrilled to be a part of this, of this amazing vocation to make basically incredible things more accessible to more people. It's wonderful. It's almost like we're, when I say we, because we're audiobook narrators, we provide a service for people. I I know I've I've, uh, talked to some people that have dealt with blind people and it's really interesting that they say that they love getting audiobooks because obviously Braille is available, but they go, they can listen and it brings it alive to them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I appreciate that. 
So let's talk about the average audiobook narrator, because people ask all the time, another question I receive is the fact of, can you make money doing audiobooks? What do you what do you say to those individuals? Audiobooks, as you know, is on the low side of of compensation when it comes to voiceover work. It's I think the lowest is bottom. It's more of a lifestyle to be able to a uh, choice is what I've heard it uh, compared to. For me to make a, a living just doing audiobooks, and that's what I primarily do. I just do audiobooks, but I need to record because you got to just you got to crank it out. So I've had to develop a system where I can record 10 hours a week. I shoot for that. Sometimes I do a little more, sometimes a little less. But I need to record around 10 hours a week to make sure everything gets, all the bills get paid. And so, and that has to be 10 hours of material that's not done on, you know, you're not, you're not doing it on the cheap or you're lazy. That's got a stuff that's going to be gather, that's going to garner five-star reviews. That's got to be top-notch stuff that you're cranking out every single week. So can you make a, can you make an income doing it? Yeah, you can. It's, it's, it's hard. You can develop some tips and tricks and some, uh, some workflows and some ways to get around that. Cause on top of that 10 hours, you've got to do your marketing. You've got to do your, your social media stuff. You've got to, you've got to build in time to go to, to, to all of the, all of the networking events and everything like that. There's just, there's a lot to it. It's not, it's, it's not easy, but it's, it's worth it. I love it. So it's possible. It's not easy. Yeah, I think you have to love it. Yeah. Right. But take us through maybe a 10 hour day as far as the step-by-step process. What does it look like for you for the 10 hour day when you start your narration from the beginning to the end? Just a little bit of a summary of what, what do you go through in those 10 hours? In, in For a regular day? Yeah, for a regular day. Okay. Well, I'll wake up and then I'll do, I'll answer emails and then I'll do some marketing that, that can be outreach to authors, outreach to publishers, follow up on stuff that I've already sent out, whatever, whatever the marketing is. But I, I try and do that every, every day, a little bit every day. And then I will go into my narration and I'll record a, a, a one hour, I call them episodes because that's how I started. With, but uh, I'll, I'll do, I'll record a finished hour. You know, I'll sit down and I'll and I'll record a finished hour, and I try and get all that done by by lunchtime. Uh, I eat an apple every day for my breakfast, and I have coffee, so it's like that's that's all I have in the morning, so that there's nothing competing with the with the old pipes. So that'll be that. I'll have lunch, and then uh, in the afternoon, I'll do another episode, another full hour, finished hour, and that can take two to three hours depending on the material and and everything. And then I I try and block off time in the evenings to spend with my family. So I'm with them from about, you know, hopefully I'm done by six from six to nine or from five to nine or whatever. And then when people go to bed, I'll, I'll actually stay up a little bit and usually do work on my website or something like that. Sometimes I'll even record another episode from, uh, you know, nine to midnight or whatever. And then, um, and that's, that's, that's basically my day. So it sounds almost like more than 10 hours at times. Yeah, most of the time it's more, I'm just working kind of all the time. Glad I've been able to train myself to block off that time and really make that for the family. But I, but that is one thing too. I always make myself accessible, even when I'm recording, even when I'm doing whatever for my family. If because I mean I they live here. I'm I'm just in my studio in my in my basement. I need to be 
you know, responsive and, and understanding when they need me to do stuff or I need to go pick up kids or whatever like that. It's one of the wonderful things about working at home and having this schedule is the flexibility that it, that it offers. But if it's, if I'm just left to my own, that's kind of what I shoot for. Do you do vocal warmups? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have a five minute, you know, like a singing arpeggio kind of thing that I do. And then I also, um, I will read about a page of the, of the material I'm about to do with a, a piece of, actually, I'll, <clears throat> I'll just show you. I bite on the end of this, wherever it is. <laughs> you know, it's a, oh, okay. this is my entertainer's secret throat spray. So I'll just bite on the end of this and I'll clean it off afterwards. And <laughs> while, I'm, while I have that in my mouth, I'll read the first page or so of what I'm working on. At that point, hopefully, if everything sounds good, then I'll, then I'll be able to start. The other thing that I've noticed that people have asked me is, the voice changes from the morning until the evening. So how do you match that up from the beginning of the day to if you come back and do pickups or whatever it may be in the evening? How do you match those voices up when your voice changes? I, I just being as close as you can to the material, to, to your, just tuning your ear so that you hear, oh, man, I'm sounding pretty raspy. Because you can do, I mean, it is what it is. But there are some adjustments you can make. And so it just has to do with training yourself to make sure that you sound as close as you can to what you did last night or what pickups you're doing or whatever it is. But yeah, there's there's a definite change and there, you've got to adjust for that. Do you do multiple books at the same time during your 10-hour work day? Do you do multiple books or you just work on that one book only throughout that 10 hours? I like it best to do it all. I like I like it best to do it all all at once, because I like to research something and then have the characters or the content in my head, and then just have that go through the way. The longer the better for me. And it's funny because just yesterday I spent the morning recording my podcast for the week, and then I had another hour or two hours of of a nonfiction audio book that I just did really quickly. But and so that point was brought home. I don't like to do that. I like to just go for it. You know, sometimes you have to, but I do prefer having him in my head and just going to town. With 620 audiobooks and all of the classic tales you do, do you ever find your characters overlapping? And then all of a sudden you listen to one of your books, maybe after you've already produced it and narrated and went, boy, that just sounds like the last guy I did. <laughs> do you ever have that crossover? When I first started, I tried to have that be a different cast of characters for every everyone you know but that could you know I'm, I'm sorry i can only do that for so long you know so after a while i just kind of go oh that's james mason okay oh that's you know the basil rathbone sherlock holmes character that's the this one and i just kind of that's my old lady voice that's the old lady mid-american that's the old lady you know british or whatever that's mrs mcgonagall whatever it is i just you know whatever little tricks i can do to keep the cast of characters consistent within the book in my head that's that's what I can do. But I kind of gave up on trying to make everything I've ever done sound different a while ago. Almost a possibility. Right? Yeah, I right. can't do it. Right. Let's talk about dialects and accents, uh, because I noticed that you, I listened to your samples, and they are spot on. And I'm a dialectician, so I can validate that. But how did you learn all these accents and dialects? Just strictly by your ear? Or did you study phonetics? How did you learn them? 
so not impressive. I don't have any ma- magical thing to say. I just listened. I, I took some books back when they, they, I got a book by Robert Blumenfeld that had a whole bunch of accents and some CDs in them. And so I would listen to the dialect, study it. But really, the, I just, I, I'm just a copier. I just listen and I can just hear what they're doing and I just copy it. And the thing is, in the accent work, you can get so far doing that, you know, but there really is an extra edge when you've actually been trained and you've had the training and you can hire someone or be taught by someone like yourself who is an expert and can get you there. And so I, while I can do a lot of accents, I really am starting to really feel that gap of where I would like to be to what I've, to where I am now. But so, so, so to answer your question for what, what you're hearing, that's just me giving it my best shot, researching wherever I can and going for it. What about characters? Do you hear character voices in your head and do you read each of the books pretty much before you decide which characters, when there's multiple characters in the book, do you hear the characters' voices in your head? How do you come up with those character voices? I used to map them out. I used to actually um, do a mind map and write down the characters and then go find images on the internet that reminded me, oh, that's that character, that's that character. I don't do that so much anymore just because, I don't know, just because I've done so many. They're easier to keep track of. But I will make notes. I'll make a little dossier before I start. Like, this is that character, this is that character, and this is where they're from. If there's any contextual clues in the book itself, I'll write down where this character is from. This one has a high-pitched voice. There's one of a, a murderer who'd like that I'm doing now that like their voice changes three times because they disguise it in different ways. And so I've had to like, you know, just things like that. The most important thing is being true to the context of the script. And once I know what the script says and, you know, listen to what, uh, if the author has any notes or the producers or whoever have any notes, just do that. And then I just kind of do it. I make an, I make a recording of every character though. Once I establish a character's voice, make a recording of that and create a, a library so that whenever they come back again in three chapters, I can listen and make sure they're consistent. So, right. And so as far, as far as the characters that you, you portray, have you ever noticed yourself getting emotional when you're reading a piece where you've had to stop and go, I'm too emotional. I have to, I have to stop for a moment and collect my, you know, collect my emotions. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, it has. Yeah, there's been a couple of times when it's usually, I mean, the, the, the kind of stuff I get, it's it's pretty light. Um, a lot of the fiction I do is, is on the lighter side. Some of the classics are can be heavier. Some of the nonfiction stuff that I run into that, I, that I'm presented with, it can be where it's a real person telling a real tragic story. I've had to stop and collect myself and, you know, because you want to be as, as real to the, and as close to the material as possible. I mean, that's part of the job is being as as close and as and really embodying as much as you possibly can all of the the characters and their situations you really want to visualize that so i've i've told you some people and they're very experienced and some of them say you know i don't read the book i i just kind of go through it and scan it or whatever do you read the entire book of every almost every book that you're going to narrate do you read the entire text Yes, and I need to I need to read it and I need to just prep it. You you have to do that prep work. I mean, and I've tried it the other way. I've tried to do it cheaper and easier to just jump in and do it. Just doesn't work. Too many surprises. Oh yeah, I've had to years ago when I would like, I'm just gonna start reading it. It's like, oh no. 
That's the murderer. And he's, well, he was John Boy from the Waltons. Or, oh, he can't, that won't work, you know? So, yeah, that, it just doesn't work. It's it's no. not, it's not being, I don't think it's being responsible. I mean, people are giving you their, their baby. People have worked so hard on this book. It's, it's, it's responsible to read it through, do all of your prep work, make sure everything is correct, as, as, as good as you can, and do the best job you can. Let's talk about that relationship between the author and the narrator. How important is that, do you think? Because I've read some of your testimonials, and it sounds like the authors got to know you personally. So how does that work with some of the authors that you've worked with? It's part of the job is learning how to present yourself in the digital realm and in you know, where a lot of the correspondence is through email and, you know, is through being accommodating, being flexible, being understanding, being, being kind when you, when they're asking questions and just, I mean, our, our job is to make their vision a reality. So when they're listening to it, they're like, yes, that's even better than what I imagined. And so that's, it's an incredible job that we have to be able to do that. And so, and it's tricky because a lot of the people in the testimonials that you read, I haven't met face to face. I haven't even talked to some of these people on the phone. I've never heard their voices before, but we have working relationships where I've done 40 of their books and they hire me again and again, and we have a good working rapport. It's more challenging because you can't just meet them. So you have to kind of create a digital presence, a digital personality, being accommodating, being understanding, being patient, hitting your deadlines, being professional. So I think I think that is what you're seeing in those testimonials is me learning. And by the way, it didn't start that way. I had to learn this the hard way, which means lots of mistakes. But that is what that is the result of is, is learning that. Let me, let me read one of the testimonials that gave me this. Yeah, they gave me this question. This is, quote, B.J. Harrison is hands down one of the nicest, most helpful, most professional people I've ever worked with. My readers love him, which is an added bonus. But more than that, he does a phenomenal job on my books. I honestly had no idea how talented he was when we first started nor how much I would need that talent for all my many characters. I am blessed to have such a great narrator on my team. Thank you, BJ, for being one of the best in the business. And that's from author Kristen Painter. And I looked her up and wow, she does a myriad of books. Yeah. Award-winning. And I just was kind of touched by that. Because of what you just explained to me, that you've never met Kristen Painter, have you? I've never met Kristen. And we've done, I think, 65 books now. And she's, she, she's, an, she's, an, she's amazingly prolific, but we're just a good match. I really love her books because when we started, the first one, she does paranormal romantic comedies. Mm-hmm. And it's just so fun. She's created this world where there's vampires and werewolves and all sorts of stuff. So they come from all over the world. She didn't know when she when when I got the first book through ACX. So this was just one I got through ACX that turned into years of work. But she didn't know when I got the ones I did a good British and I did a good whatever. You know that was good. That worked for that book. But she she later had whole books that took place in Ireland and took place in 
and, and, and where there was a dragon who was Russian. And so the whole thing was Russian. And that was all sorts of things like that that didn't even, there's leprechauns. And then there's water witches and all sorts of things that I didn't even, you know. So it's been it's been just a blast doing doing her stuff. And she's introduced me to some of her amazing friends. And I've done work for some of them and everything like that. So it's it's been a blast. It's just been so fun. Well, what was interesting is that she puts these characters in like real situations <laughs> and in real life. And I start reading summaries and listening to some of your uh, samples. And I just thought, I've, I've got to listen to those books. They were fascinating. <laughs> what, a, what a magical world she creates. It's it's amazing. She's created this like this world called Nocturne Falls where there there there's you know real supernaturals and real stuff like that, but they play it like it's a theme park kind of thing where it's like, you know, they're hiding in plain sight, but they're real, but everybody thinks that they're costumed people. And so she'll take all of these different things and but then she's expanded them and invited other people to write stories about her world. And so it's so that got me even more work. It was a really smart idea. Right. So let's talk about reviewers for just a minute, because on many of the voiceover audiobook narration pages on Facebook, people have a tendency to talk about that quite a bit. How much value do you put in the fact these are these are great reviews, but what about your actual listeners? How much value do you put in and do you read them at all as far as your what your your constant listeners to your audiobooks, how much value do you place on those? Or are you kidding? Those are my those are my patrons. Those are the folks that are, you know, they actually are supporting the podcast and stuff like that. And so yeah, absolutely. I I want to hear what they have to say and even the negative ones. It's like, hey, I'm it's not like I'm all that, you know, there's always room to improve. And so even ones that are like I mean, there are some that are just absolutely crazy bonkers over the top. Like, this is the worst narration ever. You know, you know it's like, okay, I got it. I'm not for everybody. That's fine. But it took a while to cause see in the beginning, when I was still trying to sound like Basil Rathbone, I had an affect that was off-putting. It really was. And some people could overlook that and see what I was trying to do. And some people, it just rubbed them the wrong way. And I get that. I don't blame them. Hopefully, I don't do that anymore. But if I do, let me know because I don't want to do it anymore. And, and I think I think what's important is what people need to remember is that if there's 300 reviews out there and 299 did not like your book or did not like what you did, you you need to really take stock of that. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's instead of, right. Instead of people saying sometimes, oh, just ignore it if it's negative. Well, you can't ignore 299 out of 300. People are, if they don't like something, they're more likely to review it and, and, and complain about it than they are to praise it. If they Correct. It. But yeah, I think it's like, nobody wants to hear it, but I mean, some of the best moves I've made personally and professionally have been when I've had to listen to stuff I didn't, that, that was uncomfortable, you know, gotta be strong enough and resilient enough to listen to that, take it in and do better. You're not going to find every book beautifully written, correct? Yeah. Yeah, and especially working for independents, you get people who are coming in at all levels of of writing ability. And, you know, our job as narrators is to elevate it as much as we can. Just make it digestible, make it sound really natural to be read aloud, to give characters life, to to just make it as, as good as we can. And then uh, that's a fun process to take something that might be, you know, 
On the other side, if it's a really well-written but hard-to-digest nonfiction piece, it's a real it's a real stamp of approval, I think, to to be able to take something that's hard to plow through and make it digestible and enjoyable to the listener. Here's a question that I get from a lot of different people with as many books as you've narrated. What was the most challenging book you ever narrated? The most challenging book? I, I don't I don't have one. Probably the ones that the ones that are basically what we've been talking about. The ones that are, you know, maybe written at a lower level of writing ability that are a little harder just to read aloud, where the characters a little more or a little more loose, loosey goosey. <laughs> so there's that spectrum. And then on the other side, the some of the some of the more dense nonfiction pieces about, you know, things I'm really not familiar with that I've had to basically train myself, learn about economics and how to talk about the the how to talk about mathematical formulas and stuff like that, that I'm really just not familiar with, you know, where I've actually had to do some education before I could talk about it realistically. <laughs> that would be on the other side. Um, Are there any genre of books that you really enjoy narrating? I love doing the classics. I love doing the classics. That is what I want to do. That I don't care if I don't get, if publishers come to me with like a, a nonfiction that's not super exciting, or I get a, a book that I'm like, I don't, hey, that's fine, because I get to do my podcast and the classics, and I get to keep doing that, and and that's really been, when I'm in the middle of, of something that's more difficult or, or whatever, it's been great to be able to do that. I just, I don't know. Since audiobooks opened that up for me, that access to the classics, I love feeling that I'm helping other people run across stuff they otherwise wouldn't. So. What, are, what are some concerns you have about your future in audiobook narration? What are some of the things that you kind of projecting five years, 10 years down the road as far as where you will be? What are some of the concerns you may have? The industry is changing so rapidly. I'm, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> you know. I don't know where we'll be in five, 10 years. The actual way that audiobooks are being recorded and the styles and the methods and the that's ever evolving even the the recording of it and the there's so much of this that is changing so my approach is i and this is just the way that i am i just i'm not that good at thinking way way in the future i can see so many steps ahead kind of and that's it so i have a set of things that i'm working on that i can do that i see clearly and uh, at that point i'll just go that far and and see what's next you know, I've been reading about, and I, I think everybody is aware now of the automated voices that they are creating nowadays. And I read recently where they're working on transferring that to maybe audiobook narration, mm -hmm. where they would have an automated voice. The thing that I'm not concerned about is I don't know if a robotic or whatever you're recreating can somehow teach emotion. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with that. I absolutely do. There's something about that personal. I mean, the audiobooks. It's so it's so intimate. It's such an intimate, personal kind of connection that you have with with the listener. It's like I said, it's a great privilege. And so to to take that actual personal human element out, even though they can read the word "the" really good or whatever it is, and technically sound really good, and even have a lot of emotion to remove that human it dilutes the it dilutes the whole thing it turns it into something else yeah it, it almost goes back to 
and this is no in any way criticism of of novice people that start audiobooks, but if you work with people that are novices and do coaching, it's really kind of interesting because you go, are you, are you just going to record it that way? You just read the book, you know, you, you didn't put anything behind it. You just read the book mm-hmm. and they go, oh, did I just read the book? I said, yeah, you just read the book. You just read the words. Now we need to go ahead and talk about what's behind the words. So I think, I think you're very accurate in that. So BJ, as we're wrapping it up, you mentioned your family and I'm so glad you did because all of my guests, all of my guests mentioned that their family comes first in their life, which I am, I, I am so impressed that people put their families before everything. How has your family adjusted to you doing audiobooks? And pretty much you kind of remain in your basement or wherever your, your studio is for a long period of time. How has your family adjusted to that, especially your wife? I am so lucky because my wife grew up in an environment of freelancing. Her father was a production designer for television film. Like I said, he got me into the industry. And so she doesn't want me to have a full-time job working for someone else. She's, she's always been so supportive and pushed me to, to be a freelancer. And so I've, I've been just lucky to do that. So she's been just, of course, I mean, she's my soulmate. She's the person for me. And I'm so thrilled uh, for everything that she's been so supportive. And of course the kids, I have three kids and I record and they've like lived their whole, their poor lives in a sound studio, basically, you know, I'm, my daughter is above me and my, her room is above my studio. And so she's had to like, know dad's recording. So we can't, you know, got to stay out of the thing. Or every time that she opens up her drawers, it sounds like a bowling alley. So you can't do that. So, you know, and, and, and my son writes outside him and he has a bedroom right here. I mean, for years he had to like, just be quiet when he would, you know? So yeah, it, it does demand a lot of the family and I try and always be understanding for, for everything that I put them through because you do. How, how critical is your family on your audiobooks? How critical are they? Yeah. When they listen to them, you know, cause they know you sit down there and they produce them all day long. And but how critical are they when they hear the final product? Oh, they, I don't, I don't, they don't listen to too much. <laughs> you know, they don't, they've, they've heard enough of dad talking. So they're not going to go out and listen to more, you know, okay. so, but my, my daughter, when she was younger, she would go to sleep and the, and the, the boys too, they would, they would go to sleep listening to, you know, Alice in Wonderland or whatever it was, you know, they would listen to Arsene Lupin or Sherlock Holmes when they would go to sleep. Uh, Goldie, my daughter, she's like memorized Alice in Wonderland, but she memorizes these characters. And I did it like 10 years ago, but right. to her, that's like right there. She knows them so well and she'll like remember when this and this and this happened i'm like i i'm i don't but i'm glad you like it you know here's a question for you if you were going to leave a legacy for your family and friends how would you want to be remembered basically for through my podcast i want to be remembered as somebody who kind of spent a lot of the time recording stuff to make stuff more approachable for people who otherwise wouldn't have run across it if if i can be remembered as somebody who like you know Somebody can say, I was never going to read Ivanhoe or 
whatever it was. But I ran across this and I love, I've been exposed to authors I'd never heard of, been exposed to that. That's what I'm, that's what I'm going for. That's what I'm working on. And to, to have that be a legacy would be incredible. You know, I think we're very fortunate because in our industry, when we pass away, our, our families can listen to us again. They can listen to our books. They can listen to our voiceovers, film acting, whatever it may be. A lot of people don't have that same opportunity, but artists do. And yeah. so I think we're very, very fortunate to be in the industry we're in. Absolutely. BJ, we need to wrap this up. And you've been an extraordinary guest. But before we go, what are some closing thoughts you have for our listeners today? I would say for like words of wisdom, a tip, don't ask for anyone's permission to follow your passion. Don't wait for someone to say, yeah, you can do that. Just jump in or or don't wait until you have that level of schooling or that level of whatever. If you're ready to jump off, jump off and run as far as you can and do everything that you want to. If someone's going to make movies or write novels or act or paint, someone's going to do it. Someone's going to do all that stuff. It might as well be you. If you feel like you're getting pushed that way, I'd say go for it. Learn everything you can. It's a wonderful ride. Beautiful comments to end our interview today. BJ, thank you so much. 